Good morning. Um, my name's Tim. I'm uh, one of your pastors here at GBC, and uh, it's uh, I'm really thrilled to be um, opening God's Word with you this morning. It's going to be it's going to be great. Um, I'm going to start by uh, reading from Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 through to 30. So have your Bible there. Read along with me. I think the notes will come up on the screen. Matthew 19, verse 16 to 30. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and mother, and you shall shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, will have, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, please, by your Spirit, be generous to us that we might be able to see and be ready to hear what it is you have to teach us this morning. Please, Father, point us to your Son, Jesus. Point us to his love for us. Point us to his great kindness to us that we might be energized and fueled to live wholeheartedly for you with faith and with love and with joy. And Father, we ask this In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, High school can be a cruel place. I was in year 10 uh, when some of my friends printed out a $100 bill so that they could then glue it to the floor and stand back ready to watch people walk past and gaze at this $100 thinking that they've just won the lottery. You can imagine it. It was just in the courtyard, just outside the library. 10 metres away, the year 10s were in a pack staring and waiting and watching 
And of course it wasn't long until an unsuspecting, innocent year seven kid with his oversized blazer hanging on his shoulders walked past and saw the $100. His eyes doubled in size and he was exhilarated at the fact that this $100 was going to be his. But then the crushing realisation, he bent over, tried to peel it off the floor, but it wasn't budging. And he knew that he had been got. There's many lessons to learn from that story. If you're in year seven, consider yourself warned. If you see $100 on the floor, don't go for it. Have a quick look around first. Maybe scuff it a little with your foot and then see if it's the real deal. That might save you uh, a little bit of uh, face at school. Uh, But there's something else to learn from that story, isn't there? Money has a big impact on us, doesn't it? The year seven kid who walked past probably imagined everything that that $100 was going to do for his life, the things that he was going to be able to buy with it, the, the way that he was going to be able to impress his friends with it, all the things flowing through his mind. Money does something to our hearts, doesn't it? There's a YouTuber, he's called Mr. Beast. Um, He's very popular. Some of you will know who that is. If you've never heard of him, that's quite fine. You're you're not missing out on much. Um, He's insanely rich, and he posts videos on YouTube featuring expensive stunts, mostly stunts where he gets others to play in them or participate in them so that they could earn some money. Probably at some stage while I was procrastinating or wasting time, I watched one of these videos, I started watching some of them, And it's called Three Months in a Circle. He challenged a guy to live for three months, 100 days, inside a 30-metre red circle out in the middle of nowhere. He has to survive 100 days there, and he would win $500,000. Of course, as I watched, I pondered and considered, yeah, could I do that? Would I have what it takes the last 100 days for $500,000? I just imagine $500,000 in my bank account right now. Mortgage finished. Uh, I could set myself up comfortably for the next, I don't know, however many years. But it gets you thinking, I reckon everyone has their price. $500,000 is a pretty good one, but I reckon everyone has their price that they would be willing to give up a whole bunch of things for. But that, that's exactly what money does, doesn't it? You start to think, what am I willing to give up in order to have money? It's powerful in the way that it affects us. It affects our emotions, our behaviours and our dreams. It can give us a sense of significance or importance or status when we compare it to the way that when we compare it to others. It can give us a sense of protection and security, can't it? That's why we stress about things like interest rates. It's why we watch fuel prices and how they're travelling. The passage that was just read out to us tells of a time when Jesus met a wealthy individual. As we hear what God has to say, we're going to learn these three things. We're going to learn the power of possessions. We're going to learn about the impossible passage and the payoff for patience. 
And as we see these things, God wants to flip our attitude towards money upside down. And he actually wants to point us towards freedom. Freedom from having our security and our joy attached to our bank balance. That's what God wants to do with us this morning. I hope you're ready to come along with me. Let me set the scene. Jesus is leading his disciples towards Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is like the MCG for Jews. It's the arena of the most significant events of their history. But Jesus has just said that he's heading there to face an opponent that will defeat him. He said that he will be killed and then raised again three days later. And Jesus' disciples, the ones who have given themselves to following this Jesus, they think he's mad. He's lost his mind. Surely, this guy is the king, and he said that he's going to come and rescue us from the Roman occupation that us Jews have been living under for several years. And you're going to die? So the trip to Jerusalem probably had the disciples scratching their head quite a fair bit. They can't quite see eye to eye with Jesus on this one. They have more questions than they have answers. Which, by the way, is exactly what you would expect if God were to visit this world, right? Something that you wouldn't expect. Something otherworldly. Something that clashes with the values of this world. And so in this section of Matthew's Gospel, in these few chapters that we're in at the moment, on their trip towards Jerusalem, Jesus wants to re-educate his disciples. He goes about recalibrating their hearts and their minds so that their attitudes would be attuned to the kingdom of heaven and not to the kingdom of this world. He's just addressed topics like greatness, loving your neighbor, marriage, and now he wants to turn towards money and possessions. The conversation starts with a stranger approaching Jesus with a question. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, if you're not a Christian here, uh, this is a great passage for you to hear from. This passage cuts through the fat. If you want in on following Jesus, here's a question that you might be interested in asking. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's a great question to have. Unfortunately for this young man, his question reveals what's truly on his heart. So he's a financially successful guy. He's gotten used to getting things done effectively and efficiently. And so he asks, what's the one good thing I must do? Did you notice that there in verse 16? He's asking, what's the one deed I need to do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus wants to show him that it's actually not about one good deed, but it's actually about one good God. Verse 17, he says, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And after showing him that, Jesus then moves towards answering the man's questions. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he responds, but which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, 
Do not commit adultery, do not steal, bear false witness, and you shall honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Not surprising, all of these commandments come from the Jewish scriptures that this, that this young man, this wealthy man, would have been grown up in. And so in verse 20, he responds, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? This says the young man. For some reason, he still thinks he lacks something. Perhaps there's something spiritually adventurous going on inside his heart uh, that causes him to be discontent with that kind of an answer. Yeah, sure, he's kept the commandments, but so have most good Jews. And they don't seem to be connected with Jesus like his disciples are at the moment. What is it, Jesus? What, What am I still lacking? Jesus knew that this man was a Jew. He knew that he had been taught the commandments from a young age and grown up to keep them. And it was not uncommon for Jews to be diligent in keeping the commandments. The Apostle Paul, one of the authors of the New Testament, he was a Jew uh, also. And in his letter to the Philippians, one of the New Testament books, he says of himself that according to the law, he was blameless. So I don't think the young man here is being dishonest when he says he has kept the commandments. It's probably what he, what he thinks he's done his whole life. And it's at this point, it's at this point that Jesus then cuts straight to the heart. To the deepest recesses of his heart, where only the most precious treasures are kept. He says, all right, young man, verse 21, if you would be perfect, Go. Sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Perfect here in verse 21 is, it's not referring to moral perfection or a higher class of Christian. It's another way of saying fit for entry. Essentially, Jesus is saying this. This is what you need to do if you want eternal life. In verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, in reality, this guy should have responded like the year seven kid who just found $100 on the floor. Except the real stuff, he's actually found gold. Jesus had just offered him treasures in heaven. Treasures that nothing on this earth can take away or touch It's a no-brainer if he's seeing things clearly. Yes, absolutely. I'll give up everything to come and follow you, Jesus. Treasures in heaven. Life for eternity with you. It's a no-brainer. But that's exactly what he's not willing to do. And so his heart is revealed, isn't it? It's revealed what it is that's most precious to him. In his heart of hearts... This man's greatest good was not God, was not Jesus, but it was his possessions. Money's great, isn't it? Um, It allows you to enjoy great food and coffee. Uh, You can be generous, generous with it to others. And God tells us we can even use it to invest in his purposes in this world. But money is never happy to settle for second place. There's only one throne that sits on the human heart, and money is power hungry. 
It wants to be the king of your life. It wants to rule. And we're often all too happy to let it rule our hearts. The king of your heart is whatever you're looking to for ultimate security. An ultimate sense of everything is going to be all right. Something that comforts your worrying mind when your worries start to bubble to the surface. And as those who call themselves Christians, Jesus is the one who sits on that throne, the throne of your heart. We submit to him and we trust in him. He becomes the ultimate comfort in our life. The one who says he'll always be with you. The one who has destroyed every one of our enemies. Not even death could separate you from his love. And as Christians, we've turned to him as our saviour and the one who's going to be the Lord of our life. But even for us Christians, those who have submitted to Jesus, we still feel this temptation, don't we? We feel the temptation to live as though money rules our lives. And to some degree, I think that's all of us. I know that I've found opening my bank app um, on my phone and seeing the balance there can often affect my mood in ways that it that probably ought not to, either positively or negatively. So knowing that this is true about ourselves and hearing what God is saying in this passage, God wants to ask this question of you. Who is on the throne of your life? Who really is king? What are you looking to ultimately for comfort and hope and security? Jesus said this earlier in Matthew's Gospel, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so the question is pushed towards us, who is sitting on the throne of your life? Uh, The Barefoot Investor is Australia's uh, all-time best-selling book. Uh, It looks like Jamie Oliver, but it's not a cookbook. Um, It's a guide to managing your finances. Um, And there's lots in there that we we as a family have found really helpful um, and useful. One of the strategies it suggests is to create what's called a mojo account. An account that's not easy to access. Maybe it's in it with a different bank than you normally use. And it's a place where you can put away a a few thousand dollars, he suggests, um, reserved just for emergencies. But what's interesting to notice is what he says about the Mojo account. The feeling of security that comes with having more than enough money never leaves you. It never wears off. It becomes part of who you are and colours your entire view of what's possible. It's what gives you your mojo. Now, there's plenty of wisdom in putting away money in an account like that. It does eliminate some of the stresses that, uh, that happen in life. There is wisdom in doing that. But I think when you see what this book says about money, it also shows how seductive money can be. A feeling of security that never leaves you. 
That's what our hearts long for, isn't it? Man, if something was offering that, I would give up all my possessions to go and follow that. Security. The feeling that everything is going to be okay, no matter what tomorrow brings. It's a seductive pull on our hearts, isn't it? So I wonder where you might be tempted to go and trust in money instead of Jesus. To help you answer that question, I've got three more questions that might help you diagnose your own heart, that might help you to see where it is that you might be tempted to turn to money instead of Jesus. I've got three questions. I'm going to read them out and give you time to ponder them. Do you think more money is the key to making you happier? Do you think making more money is the key to making you happier? Question two. Do you turn to your bank balance or to prayer when you feel worried? Do you turn to your bank balance or to prayer when you feel worried? Question three, do you give up meeting with God's people to make more money even when you already have enough? Do you give up meeting with God's people to make more money even when you already have enough? Now, life's complicated. Um, There are sometimes reasons why you need to work on a Sunday when, when things just, there's no other way around it. But where are the priorities in your life? That's what these questions are trying to get get at. What's going on in your heart? Where are you tempted to look to money and not to Jesus? If you're not a Christian here with us, thanks for being here. We love helping people consider who Jesus is for the first time. We, We think he's great. And I wonder if you've ever considered the possibility that something is ruling your life. Everyone is looking to something to give them an ultimate sense of comfort and security. And this gives you a great opportunity to see what it is to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian means allowing Jesus to be the one who rules your life. He's the one that then calls the shots in your life. He's the one that you submit your will to. But as people do that, we trust that he offers a greater comfort than anything else. If you would be willing to come along with me, the next half of this passage is going to help us understand why and how. And so it starts with the impossible passage. Jesus then turns to the disciples to help them make sense of the rich young man. Verse 23, he starts by saying that with great difficulty, a rich man will enter the kingdom of heaven. But then he escalates it even further. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people have tried to make the impossible possible in this passage, saying that the eye of the needle was the name given to a small gate that's in the wall of a a city uh, at the time. Uh, one that people could walk back and forth through, but camels would find it really difficult to get through. They'd have to bend right down. Um, but there's actually not a lot of, actually zero historical evidence that 
uh, that, was ever, that term was ever used in that way, either biblical or non-biblical sources. No, this proverb is communicating something quite clear. It's impossible. It can't happen. And so it is with a rich person entering the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples' response confirms this to be true. And they ask, they ask the exact question that should follow. Verse 25, who then can be saved? And Jesus' response, verse 26, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If you're new to church or Christianity, a word Christians often use is the word theology. Theology simply means the study of God or the study of how things relate to God. Um, at its foundation, true theology, good theology, is found and based on the revealed word of God in the Bible. And as we come to understand that, we receive it with faith and with trust, believing that what the Bible says about reality is true, even if it doesn't line up with our own experience. We submit to it. And Jesus wants his disciples to have a theological awareness of the human heart. See, I reckon it would be easy for us to think that people are basically good. That perhaps if God just made himself more abundantly known and clear, not just to a few people, but to more people, then more people would come to trust in Jesus and be as simple as that. Or even as we look back on our own experience of becoming a Christian, we could be tempted to think that it was something that we accomplished. But Jesus won't let us think either of those two things. Those things are partly true. God will work through our decision to trust in Jesus and God will work through the revelation of him and through his gospel to people to save people. But we can't miss what Jesus is saying here, can we? He's very clear. With people, entering into the kingdom of heaven is impossible. The human heart, left on its own, does not want God. Theologians, people who have given their lives to studying God's word, have given this a name. Original sin. J.I. Packer, who's one of, those, uh, the, one of these theologians, describes original sin like this. Sinfulness marks everyone from birth and is there in the form of a motivationally twisted heart. Prior to any actual sins, this inner sinfulness is the root and source of all actual sins. And this is what God teaches us is true of every single person. That's why Jesus says it's impossible. Not just for a rich person, but for any person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Which I think tells us something about what it means to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian means yielding. It means surrendering. It means handing over control to God to do for us what is impossible for us to do. And so, at its root, that is what faith is. 
It's trusting that he has the power to make our dead hearts alive again. This is really significant for us as a church. Uh, We exist to joyfully advance the gospel in this region and beyond. If we want to see more and more people come to know and love and trust Jesus, we need to get a grasp of this truth. Because Jesus has just said it's an impossible task. Jesus has just said that for us to be the ones who do this, it would be impossible. But it's only possible with God. And that's got to shape how we go about advancing the gospel in this region and beyond, doesn't it? It means that, one, prayer is going to be critical. Prayer is going to be critical to us making any advance of the gospel in this region. We must be busy about being on our knees, praying to God that he would open people's hearts, that he would straighten out the motivationally twisted hearts that exist in every human heart. So we must be a church that's willing to pray. That's why it was so great to be joining with others the other Monday night at our prayer meeting. There's nothing that's more effective and efficient at reaching this region than doing absolutely nothing and praying. And number two, we ought not be surprised. We ought not be surprised when people walk away, like the rich young man did. We ought not be surprised when there's people who we try to hold the gospel out to and they choose not to respond. They're holding on to the precious things of this life and their eyes are blinded to see the true treasures that are before us in heaven. Possessions of this world are too precious to their heart. So we ought not be surprised. So far we've seen the power of possessions, we've seen the impossible passage, and to close, the payoff for patience. Peter responded to Jesus, verse 27, We've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? It's hard not to see Peter's own selfish desires coming out in this questions. What will we have? But Jesus still responds with kindness and mercy. And basically, Jesus presents the truth of the gospel to Peter and the disciples. And friends, can I invite you in here? This is where we get to discover and find the power that will change us and allow us to follow Jesus. This is where we find the power that's going to loosen our grip on money and possessions. And it's the power that will make us more joyful and more ready to give up the precious things of this life to follow Jesus. So Jesus points the disciples to look forward to the edge of history In verse 28, he points them to the time when he will sit on his glorious throne in heaven. And those who have followed him, at this stage he's referring just to the disciples at this stage, they will sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The disciples here are described as receiving a place of honour in the work of God's purposes in this world. 
The disciples will become the ones who will first hold the gospel out to the world. And it's their gospel that will become the standard by which all other people will be judged. Have people trusted in the gospel or have they walked away? These 12 disciples will sit on the throne, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a little bit cryptic, but I think what he's trying to say here is that even Israel will need to submit to the gospel that the 12 disciples are holding out. If that's a little bit confusing, that's okay. Understanding Israel's history is a big topic. But the key point is this. The disciples gave up everything to follow Jesus. Everything. They gave up business opportunities, relationships with family and friends, things that were precious to them to follow Jesus. They gave up a comfortable life and they gave their lives to preaching the gospel, being persecuted as they did. And they received a reward that makes it more than worthwhile. And Jesus, in the future, he sits on his throne in glory. But first, he must go to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, Jesus would be be falsely accused, given a crown of thorns, whipped, beaten, nailed to a cross, and murdered. And on the cross, he would endure the punishment for sins that each of us deserves. He gave up what was precious to him. The Bible puts it this way in 2 Corinthians, Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave up precious things for your sake. Jesus was stripped of the riches of heaven, so that you could be richly rewarded in the kingdom of heaven. Can you see the pattern? The disciples gave up everything to follow Jesus and were rewarded in heaven. Jesus gave up his life to take away your sins before he sat down on the throne in heaven. And it's the exact same for us, isn't it? Verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. See, a life of following Jesus may mean leaving precious things behind. Perhaps a family that doesn't want you to become a Christian Perhaps giving up job opportunities that are not ethical or don't line up with a life of following Jesus. Perhaps friends who won't accept you because uh, because you're choosing to follow Jesus. Following Jesus will mean giving up the precious things of this life to follow Jesus. Some of you here today have done that. I want to encourage you to take encouragement from what Jesus is saying here. You will receive a hundredfold compared to what giving up following Jesus has meant for you. You won't be let down. 
And some of these things are truly precious. It's not wrong for you to be sad about having to leave them behind to follow Jesus, especially if it's the special people in your life. But take encouragement for what Jesus is saying. Following Jesus will pay out in the end. It will be worthwhile. And some here today need to be challenged. Money has the power to pull you away from Jesus. We've seen it here in black and white. This man chose his possessions over following Jesus. That can happen and will happen. Hear the challenge from Jesus this morning. If you're feeling the pull of possessions and making more money and other things like that, pulling you away from Jesus, turn back to Jesus. Turn back to him and you'll find him ready to embrace you straight away. The reward of heaven is before us. And so it's worth giving up the possessions now for Jesus when he returns. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we are aware of our own human hearts that aside from you stepping into our lives and straightening out our motivationally twisted hearts, we would not turn to you. And so, Father, we are grateful for the work that you've done uh, in our lives, those of us who have trusted in your Son, that you've done that work for us and in us. Father, we're also aware, and if we're honest, um, that there is a temptation to, to turn towards money instead of turning to you. Father, please help us to see with an eternal, eternal perspective. Help us to see what life would be like with you in eternity, that we would be receiving a hundredfold for the things that we give up in this life for following you. Father, please help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.